Hey, so if you're jumping in late, I'm so glad you're here. My name is J.D. Mangrum, and I get to be the pastor of Christ Church Charlestown. And you're jumping in on week two of a series that we're going through called The Lord is My Shepherd, where we're looking at Psalm 23, the David Psalm, the Shepherd Psalm. A lot of you maybe even didn't grow up in the church, but you might be familiar with this psalm that goes, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And we're kind of slowly going through the series over the next few weeks. Before we get going today, how many of you know Joey Chestnut, know of Joey Chestnut? He's the, um, he's the regular winner of the Nathan's Famous Hot Dogs competition in Coney Island. Uh, it usually happens every year on Independence Day. In 2007, he won the competition for the first time in 12 minutes. He ate 66 hot dogs, buns and all. Uh, the next year, they shortened the competition to 10 minutes and he ate 59 hot dogs. He actually had a tie-off that year and had to do a competitive sort of eat off there at the end and ended up winning that <clears throat> beginning in 09 he won six years in a row in 09 he ate 68 then 54 62 i'm not making this up 68 69 and 61 hot dogs respectively over those next six years as as he won the 10 minute hot dog eating competition 2015 he was actually dethroned and then he's come back with a vengeance the last five summers eating 70, 72, 74, 71. And then in 2020, in an indoor competition for the first time ever because of COVID, Joey Chestnut ate 75 hot dogs and buns in 10 minutes. Just so you know, Joey Chestnut, by the way, he is not a one-trick pony. He has over 50 world records for competitive eating. Among them, he's eaten the most in a short period of time, hard-boiled eggs, glazed donuts, Taco Bell, soft shell tacos, chicken wings, though I think Carson could maybe give him a run for his money, crystal hamburgers, shrimp wontons, Twinkies, Big Mac burgers. I know my son Owen and Nip McGeehee and uh, Steve and Gene Lewis could maybe all each give him a run for his money on hamburgers, tamales, ice cream sandwiches, and a ton more. Go look it up. It's incredible the world records this guy has. And why do I mention Joey Chestnut? Because I see some of Joey Chestnut myself, frankly. Um, not so much for competitive eating, though if you put some chocolate chip cookies in front of me, I could go to town on them. What would be your thing if you were in a competitive eating competition that you think you could win with? More than food, I can have a hunger for more and more of almost anything if left unchecked. Now, some of those hungers, by the way, for me, are noble. <clears throat> some of them are not so noble. Some of them are affordable, some of them are not so affordable. Some of them are frankly really embarrassing, to be honest. There's two truths I wanna share with you today. One is I have enough. Honestly, I have enough, I really do. And number two, I need grace to protect me from me and from my wants and hungers and even what I would call needs. What about you? Do you feel like you have enough do you feel the need for grace to protect you from you? Or do you tend to be content or do you tend to be hungry? Do you tend to be resting or do you tend to be restful? What do you lack? Where does the gospel play into all of that? Now today we're going to continue in Psalm 23, a David psalm, arguably the most famous song in the Hebrew songbook. Going slowly, by the way, through this series. Today we're just going to look at a little four-word four phrase. Today we'll finish Psalm 23.1. Let me read it to you. The Lord is my shepherd. It's what we looked at last week. And then this next phrase goes, 
with it in the Hebrew, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean that people who trust in the Lord don't have wants. We all have wants and we all have needs, and it's okay to recognize those. I mean, we would be less than human if we sort of denied that we had wants. And, and God's not calling us, and the Bible, by the way, never ever calls us to this sort of, we've got to empty ourselves of all our desires and our wants, and everything we feel is, is bad. No, Scripture never calls us to that. God never expects that of us. In fact, the, the Hebrew wording of Psalm 23.1 actually says this, The Lord is my shepherd, nothing shall I lack. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Now let me just jump right in and begin to methodically plow through this phrase today. Left alone, <clears throat> first off, sheep lack everything. The rest of Psalm 23 examines what the Lord provides as every week. If you come back and join us at 1015 on Sundays or watch later, you'll see what being a sheep provides um, under the care of the shepherd. David, as a former shepherd, really understood sheep, and David really understood humanity as being really similar to sheep. So we can conclude that without a sheep, without a shepherd, sheep are left to their own to provide for themselves food and water and protection from predators and health and safety and leading and destiny and even rest. So perhaps sheep, now, I mean, honestly, perhaps sheep can provide some of those, but not all sheep can provide all of those things well. And perhaps we human beings can provide some of those things for ourselves apart from the Lord, but we can't confidently provide all of those things, particularly the intangible things of life, apart from the Lord. And certainly not soul rest, a sense of lacking nothing. So we find ourselves, apart from the Lord, the Good Shepherd, living what David Paulison has called the anti-Psalm 23. I'd like to read you the sort of poem that he's written, the anti-Psalm 23. I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated, often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths. Still, I insist. I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want. But life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and final loss. Death's waiting for me at the end of every road, but I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me except me. And I'm so much all about me. Sometimes it's sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever, homeless, free falling into void? Sarch said it best. Hell is other people. I have to add hell is also myself. It's a living death, and then I die. If that sounds depressing to you, I totally agree. I totally agree. But honestly, as I reflect on the lines, I can't 
find a line in that poem that I disagree with theologically and psychologically if the Lord weren't my shepherd. Left alone, sheep lack everything. Sheep lack everything left alone. So for all of us, sheep under the shepherd and sheep going their own way, life has trials, life has tribulations, life has needs. Everybody's life, Christian or non, everyone has deadlines and they have mean bosses or lazy employees. We have dating issues, marriage issues. We make C's on tests we studied for. Everyone has sicknesses. Everyone has struggles. Christians don't get a get out of hard times free card. We have to be careful not to sell ourselves or to sell others that false gospel. So wealth and prosperity and comfort and independence don't necessarily indicate blessing or right relationship with God. That idea is what's called the prosperity gospel. It's a false gospel in our country that wealth or independence or security mean that God must be blessing us. It's just not square with scripture. Further, poverty, struggle, humble means, challenges, having to daily live by faith and reliance on God to provide don't necessarily indicate unbelief or disobedience or that God is not present or blessing. Quite the opposite. God seems to be quite fond of the poor and blessing the poor and the marginal, the invisible and the least. Just maybe not always according to this world's standards. Again, remember, left alone sheep lack everything. Life has what it has. The question is more about whether we're under the shepherd's care. If the Lord is your shepherd, and this is important, you are never alone. Is the Lord your shepherd? As we roll into 2021, do you have relationship with God? Are you his sheep and him your shepherd? If yes, then like David, you can say, I shall not want, or I want for nothing, or there's nothing really that I lack. See, this is important. You might even write this down. <clears throat> contentment, contentment, and that's what we're talking about today, is not mostly about having everything or being happy even with what you have. There was a study a few years ago by, um, by Boston College. Their researchers were studying the uber wealthy, people worth $25 million or more, and they were wanting to find out sort of what drives these people and what makes them tick and how they spend their money and all of these things. And overwhelmingly, the researchers at Boston College found that the uber wealthy, those worth over $25 million, don't consider themselves financially secure. Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at that. When researchers asked how much they would need to think of themselves as financially secure, can you believe that the average person worth over $25 million said that they would need a quarter more wealth to consider themselves financially secure? In other words, if someone's worth $25 million, they would think they need to be worth $32 million to then consider themselves secure. And so you don't just think today when it comes to contentment and this idea of wanting for nothing. So you don't just think I'm picking on money and people who think about contentment with regards to money and stuff. Um, let's reflect on Tom Brady. 
if we might, let's reflect on Tom Brady's discontent. Now, Tom Brady begins his latest Super Bowl run this weekend. As as I record, who knows if he will win again at age 43, if he'll win his seventh Super Bowl. I guess, in a sense, as you watch, you have better insight <clears throat> than I do as I record. Because as you watch, and as we all watch the message today, he's played his first playoff game. I'm here as the week begins to wind down, I'm dying to see if he and the Buccaneers are going to make this next deep playoff run. Do you remember in 2005, though, when he was much younger, 16 years ago, Brady giving an interview with Steve Croft of 60 Minutes and reflecting on, after being so young in his early 20s, at, at his mid-20s at the time, and having already won three Super Bowls, the conversation, the interview went like this at a moment. Croft asked him, what have you learned about yourself? What kind of an effect does winning like that have on you? And Brady said, well, I put incredible amounts of pressure on me. When you feel like you're ultimately responsible for everyone and everything, even though you have no control of it, over it, and you still blame yourself if things don't go right, I mean, there's a lot of pressure. A lot of times I think I get very frustrated and introverted, and there's times where I'm not the person that I want to be. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? This is Brady. I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. What else is there for me? And Croft replied, well, what's the answer? And Brady said, I wish I knew, kind of jokingly. And then reflecting, he said, I wish I knew. Contentment is not about what we have. It's not about what we have. Contentment is mostly rather about belonging. It's about resting. It's about trusting. It's about a deep-seated confidence in Christ's sufficiency, not our own self-sufficiency. Why is discontentment so dangerous? Let's think about Eve and Adam in the Garden of Eden, those first humans. Was the problem, was their first sin that they broke the rule? Was that the first thing? Was that the real issue that they broke the rule? Remember, God told them they could have anything in the garden. They had dominion over everything in the garden. They can enjoy everything except the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In a sense of, in a sort of, discontentment and distrust. What happened? you remember they ate the fruit together? They had everything. It wasn't about what they had. Even having everything, they found it still wasn't enough. They weren't belonging and resting and trusting. The problem wasn't that they broke the rule. The problem was that they broke relationship. Their discontentment led them to opt to try to find happiness by their own means rather than trusting and resting in God. Like Adam and Eve, our discontentment breaks relationship. It disbelieves the Lord, our shepherd. Let's talk about contentment. First off, let me define it for us, if I might. Um, Eric Raymond has defined contentment. And I like this out of all the definitions I've found. I like this one the best. Inward gracious, quiet spirit that joyfully rests in God's provision. Inward, gracious, quiet spirit that joyfully rests in God's provision. I lack for nothing. I want for nothing, but I can even say that joyfully and 
in a spirit of restfulness. Contentment, going further, contentment is rooted in the God who's content in himself and lacks for nothing. The Lord, Yahweh, is enough. He's all-sufficient. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. God didn't create humans because he was lonely or lacking or without. So our contentment flows out of his contentment as his spirit, the Holy Spirit, content and lacking nothing, abides in you and I. Now, here's the next thing. Contentment, you see, requires objectivity. Let me tell you a story. When I was in college, I went whitewater rafting with some friends, and these were pretty good rapids, level three and level four in Tennessee. And I remember we got to a point where the water was really calm for a few um, for a few dozen yards, maybe a couple of foot, maybe a football field or so. So our guide, a uh, young lady, let us jump in and kind of swim. I think she was trying to buy herself some free time to talk with another guide who she thought was a handsome young man. So we're all a bunch of college-age students swimming in this river. She's talking, and uh, we swam. We're laughing. We're having a blast. And then we look up, and she's about 150 feet that way. And the rapids are less than 100 feet that way. We had gotten separated from her. Now, long story short, she starts racing that raft to us as the current is slowly pulling us toward the rapids. She finally got to us. We got everyone into the raft one by one. And I had just enough time to kind of grab my paddle and then watch the raft go over the rapids. As the water was pulling us downstream, what I most needed was to be on the riverbanks. From the banks, I would have had perspective and safety, even though I was separated from the guy. Similarly, you and I find ourselves in this river of culture, and the river of culture has a current to it as well. The current of culture tells you and I that we need to accumulate more, achieve more, upgrade now, never settle, never take a day off, get to the top. From the inside of the river of culture, it's hard to see the pull of culture. When we get to the banks, a deep life-altering conviction that the Lord is my shepherd, we can begin to see the relentless and even dangerous pull of culture on us. We need the objective position of the banks of knowing that the Lord is our shepherd. Next, uh, contentment objectively looks back to the cross and empty tomb. It looks around and sees the care of the shepherd and it looks ahead at what a mist life is. How life is just a dress rehearsal for eternity. As we look around and we see ourselves encircled by God's love in every direction, we can be content with our past regrets and sins, with our present circumstances and with our future worries. You see, biblical contentment, and this is another big idea, biblical contentment separates, excuse me, celebrates what we have and who has us, the shepherd, not what we lack. Therefore, biblical contentment is quiet and joyful, not loud and complaining. Hebrews 13.5 says, keep your life free from a love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Let me quickly say, the Lord allows us to complain to him. 
God doesn't forbid us ever from complaining to him or voicing our frustrations with him. We see this over and over in scripture. Even our even in our contentment or lack thereof, we can cry out to God. Contentment, however, biblical contentment would prevent us from complaining about God. There's a difference. Publicly, we celebrate who God is and what he has done in his possession of us. You see, biblical contentment is inside out. Biblical contentment is not circumstantial. Contentment is never based on our circumstance. You and I can't spend, uh, date, marry, decorate, save, lose, win, work, or vacation our way into contentment. Let me give you the list again. We can't spend, date, marry, decorate, save, lose, win, work, or vacation our way into contentment. Therefore, contentment happens in grace and surrender. God's Spirit builds contentment into us, not we purchase something external or we achieve something or we go somewhere and it produces contentment in us. It's always inside out, never circumstantial. Next, contentment, perhaps most importantly for us, is, a, is learned and it's a process. I want to encourage you today, if you struggle with contentment, me too. Contentment is learned and it's a process. Even for the Apostle Paul in, in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, Paul wrote, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Contentment, you see, is fueled privately because you, you might ask, well, how am I going to get contentment? Privately, it's fueled by a couple things. One, reading and meditating and soaking on God's word, the Bible, abiding in the Lord and trusting God, putting yourself before the Lord and saying, God, I trust you today, obeying God's very best for us, the instruction of his word, wherever God, what God reveals, we seek to obey privately, what God tells you to do, you learn it. You ask him for faith to do it, and then you partner with his spirit in you to do it. Publicly, to grow in contentment, you align yourself with a Bible-teaching church. You plug into a small group, and you give time and energy and resources in faith to God's mission in the world. This is how you begin to build in contentment. A life of True biblical contentment has several traits. I want to share six of them with you really quickly. I know we've been going a while, but I want to get this stuff to you. Number one, it's trusting and quiet. A life of biblical contentment is meek. It's trusting and quiet. Number one, it's sheep trusting the shepherd. Number two, a life of contentment is cheerful. It's sheep delighting in the shepherd. Number three, it's thankful. It's sheep fully and knowingly indebted to the shepherd. God, you've given me all I need. Shepherd, you have provided for me. Number four, it, it's not bound by circumstance. It's a sheep who knows that her or his perspective is limited. The shepherd can see what is and what will be, and he perfectly loves us. So the contented sheep doesn't find himself or herself limited by circumstance or situation. Number five, biblical contentment won't avoid trouble 
or difficulty by sinful means. Sheep won't run out past the shepherd out of convenience. A sheep who trusts the shepherd won't take sinful shortcuts in relationships, in finances, in time, in growth, or in any other area for that matter. And number six, biblical contentment means the sheep has nothing to prove. Sheep know the shepherd delights in them and has even laid down his life for them. We know Jesus, the good shepherd, has laid down his life to purchase our salvation. If he is for us, who can be against us? Since he is for us, what do we really have to prove to other people, to other sheep? Does that sound like a person you want to become? Meek, cheerful, thankful, not bound by circumstance, won't avoid trouble by or difficulty by sinful means and having nothing to prove to anyone. Ask yourself this, am I content? Where does my contentment come from? Where will my contentment come from today or this year or going forward? Quickly, let me just say as a sort of parentheses, remember last week I shared that sheep are group thinkers, they're majority uh, followers. Since that's true, know that discontentment in one is danger to many. But contentment, deep abiding contentment in who Jesus is and his love and provision for us, biblical deep contentment is a witness and a blessing to many. Our church's destiny, I don't want to overstate this, but I, I believe this to be true. Our church's destiny and perhaps our community's spiritual destiny Maybe in the line, maybe on the line in your contentment and in our contentment. Discontentment's a danger to, in one's a danger to all. Contentment, abiding contentment in one could be a blessing and a protection for all. So here's what I want you to do. First off, quite honestly, will you pray for me? I need more contentment in my life. This is an area where I can struggle. If you'll pray for me, I'll be praying for you. And number two, if you have a hard time with contentment or find it as an area where you need to grow, here's your homework. Here's the thing I want you to do. Take out a sheet of paper and draw a line right down the middle of it. Draw a line right down the middle of it, long ways. On one side, put this heading, things I have but don't deserve. On the other side, put this heading, things I deserve but don't have. Make the list as long as possible with tangible things, intangible things, relationships, spiritual things, moments when God did something in your life, your salvation story, times that God protected you, opportunities or resources you have, even ones that not every American or not every human today have, even stuff like clean water or internet or clean air or safety, etc., Things I have but don't deserve, things I deserve but don't have. Fill out both lists and make the list as long as possible. And then message me or post on social media or just quietly reflect on which list is longer. On which list is longer, what you don't have but deserve, what you have but don't deserve. And then look to the cross. And at the cross in grace, look to the bloodied, beaten Savior who deserved everything but laid it aside to offer, to offer salvation to those who receive him. The Bible tells us Jesus emptied himself to accomplish a salvation that we don't deserve. 
Further, Jesus did not deserve punishment and wrath, but he took them on so that you and I could be free. Look to the Savior who called himself the Good Shepherd. And let's understand that in truth, we lack for nothing. And we've been given much more than we could ever deserve. Now, let me pray for us, if I might. 